You're listening to Pep Talk, discussing policy, evidence and practice in Wales. Pep Talk is brought to you by the Wales Centre for Public Policy at Cardiff University. Hello, welcome to Chrysoe Pep Talk. Research demonstrates persistent racial inequalities in Wales. In Wales, the coronavirus mortality rate was two times higher for black males than white males. Black, Asian and minority ethnic people are overrepresented at every stage of the criminal justice system as victims of crime, in stop and searches and within the prison and probation populations. Currently, two members of the Senate are from a black, Asian or minority ethnic backgrounds, and no black, Asian or minority ethnic woman has been elected to the Senate. In the context of the death of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement, the coronavirus pandemic has laid bare the impact of such disparities in Wales, as well as the UK more widely. The Welsh Government has responded by commissioning a curriculum review led by Professor Charlotte Williams and asked Professor Emmanuel Ogbonna to lead a group reporting on socioeconomic factors that contribute to poorer health and social care outcomes of minority groups. These will help to inform the Welsh Government's forthcoming Race Equality Action Plan, designed to tackle structural racial inequalities in Wales across a range of policy areas. We at the Wales Centre for Public Policy have been supporting the development of the Welsh Government's Race Equality Action Plan by conducting evidence reviews into what works to tackle racial inequalities. I'm your host, Manon Roberts, and with me today to help unpack this topic are two experts who will each give their view on the nature and scale of racial inequality in Wales, with a focus on education and health and social care, and offer insight into the ways in which the Welsh Government could seek to respond. My first guest is Professor Emmanuel Ogbonna, who is Professor of Management and Organisation at Cardiff Business School. He is also Chair of the First Minister's BAME COVID-19 Socioeconomic Subgroup and Co-Chair of the Welsh Government's Race Equality Action Plan Steering Group. Emmanuel, could you tell us about the reports you authored for the First Minister in response to evidence of inequalities faced by racial and ethnic minority groups at risk of coronavirus-related morbidity and mortality? The First Minister moved very quickly last year. I think it was about this time last year when the reports were coming in that Black, Asian and minority ethnic people were dying in greater proportions than uh, um, their white counterparts from this horrible pandemic. And he was concerned, as we were, as most people were, And he wanted us to look into this to try to find out what was causing it and what could be done to try to reduce the number of deaths. And our report had uh, um, 12 broad teams that, that we identified and we made over 30 recommendations. Now, many of the themes that we found are now consistent with what many other Um, reports, investigations are finding. And and I can try and summarize that for you. We had 12 broad factors, but which I can summarize into four categories. And those categories are consistent with the categories that other people are now using. And those are deprivation, issues of deprivation. Black and minority ethnic people are more likely to be deprived. They are amongst the poorest people in society, Uh, the health outcomes are negative, and we have situations where uh, um, 30% of uh, Gypsy Roma traveler people uh, have experienced, uh, reports found that they have experienced racism in trying to access healthcare. So you have all those 
And then we have the second broad category, which is overexposure. Black and minority ethnic people are more likely to be overexposed to the industries and sectors you know, where this um, pandemic tends to be lethal. And they are more likely to be the doctors and the nurses that look after us. You know, they are more likely to be the taxi drivers, you know, delivery drivers. You know, they, they, are, they are more likely to work in retail. You know, so all these jobs expose them. And it's not just the exposure itself. It's also the type of exposure. So when they work in hospitals, for example, as doctors, they are more likely to be locum doctors for whatever reason, whether it is because of the pre-existing discrimination they experience or whether it is just a, a lifestyle choice for them, I don't know. But they are more likely to do those locum jobs and agency um, type jobs for nurses. And of course, we know from the beginning of this pandemic that those people did not receive the appropriate and personal protective equipment and were more likely to catch the disease and as such die from it. And you also have other factors apart from deprivation and overexposure. And a third one is comorbidities. You know, black and minority ethnic people are more likely to suffer from comorbidities that were associated with risk of death from this pandemic. You know, so heart disease, diabetes, and those types of illnesses. Although in recent times, I've been reading reports from the Lancet that suggest that that doesn't actually tell us the full story because we know that the two factors that have been identified so far as, as critical to death from this pandemic are number one, age, number two, ethnicity. But nobody's actually been able to understand how ethnicity combines with say age or indeed on its own to be able to, to lead to these outcomes. But there was a study that looked at some of these issues and, and said, hang on, we talk about comorbidities, but in actual fact, you know, the, the comorbidities don't tell the full story. So diabetes is an important factor, but it isn't the most important um, comorbidity in that sense. Apparently it is actually dementia and dementia is not something that black and minority ethnic people tend to suffer as much, for example, as their white counterpart. And that leads us to that final factor, which is what people commonly describe as the unexplained factor. And for our study, this is where we placed discrimination and racism and the structure, the systemic and structural institutional racism, if you like. So what we found, in a sense, was that institutional racism was alive and well in Wales. I'd now like to welcome Professor Charlotte Williams. Charlotte is an honorary professor at Bangor University and chair of the Communities, Contributions and Canevin BAME Experiences in the New Curriculum Working Group. Charlotte, could you tell us a little about the Working Group's report that was recently published? What the report anticipates is the work of integrating Black, Asian and minority perspectives into the new curriculum, which is going to be rolled out in 2022. Now, the new curriculum in its development always had diversity as a cross-cutting theme. But what the Minister of Education sought to do was to give a particular focus to this as a priority area and ask us as a working group to consider what resources will teachers need, 
what kind of professional learning and training will they need and what kind of wider associated supports will schools need in order to make this happen. So we've been working since um, last July and we published an interim report in November, which was specifically looking at the resources issues. And then we pub just published in March our final report with 51 recommendations, which has been all of which have been accepted by the minister. I did just want it by way of introduction to place this work in the context of quite a bit of work that is going on in relation to education. We've had Estin, who are looking at Welsh history and within that looking at black history in particular and the extent to which schools are engaging with Welsh history and black history. We've had a um, review commissioned by the Education Workforce Council on diversity representation in the education workforce and that's been in three phases and they have reported in their second phase. And there's also, as a lot of people know, been a review of public monuments in Wales and street names and other artefacts that are associated with slavery. And so those pieces of work complement what we um, are doing with the curriculum work. And we also are working very closely with the Welsh Centre for Public Policy's evidence review in education as um, feeding into the Race Equality Action Plan. Thank you for that context and thank you very much both for joining me today. I thought we could begin by exploring the social and policy context. So as we've already mentioned, the Welsh Government has committed to developing a Race Equality Action Plan. Emmanuel, could you tell us about what has driven the development of the Action Plan, um, how it was developed and what the plan will include and cover? I mean, I know we don't have the time today to uh, um, talk about um, the statistics, but as I think uh, most people will agree that the life chances of black and minority uh, ethnic people in Wales are much poorer than their, those of their white um, counterparts, almost in every sphere of um, life. I think the situation has been worsened by the marginalization of race in policymaking. You know, race is something that was seen almost as a taboo topic. Nobody wanted to talk about race until the pandemic really, and also the killing of George Floyd in the USA. Uh, and people began to see that there was something pernicious about being black minority ethnic in this country that is really, really manifestly unfair. And we began to, to, to look at that. So the race equality action plan really arises largely because in Wales, we have a progressive government, um, particularly in the shape of the minister and deputy minister and chief whip and members of the cabinet you know, that are willing you know, to look at this area and not see it as a political, if you like, hot potato that you know, shouldn't be touched. And they started to look at this before our uh, uh, report to the first minister, even the socioeconomic report, subgroup report. But they didn't do 
uh, a lot about it. They actually started working very hard on it following that report. And so this is an attempt by the first minister to implement some of the recommendations, or indeed most of the recommendations of our report. So the plan itself sets out a series of goals and supporting actions necessary that, uh, to improve the life chances of people, uh, BME people in Wales. And the plan is built on the values of anti-racism. The aim is to make a meaningful and sustainable change to the lives of people in Wales, especially the lives of black and minority ethnic people. For the plan itself, we were guided by the rapid review of evidence. Uh, and this is a significant body of literature that exists on race. And that review was undertaken by the Wales Center for Public Policy. The Wales Center for Public Policy engaged with a variety of experts to help them in arriving at the conclusions they gave us. One of them is on the call today in the shape of Professor Williams uh, 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 and um, many other people, many from black and minority ethnic background, which is always pleasing to see because there are many experts from the black and minority ethnic backgrounds. You know, I have to say though, that the most important source of evidence we received came from black and minority ethnic people themselves, the people who live with racism every day, you know, who live with the consequences of discrimination on everyday basis. And we invested heavily in that community because we wanted them to be active participants in the creation of the plan. And they did not disappoint. You know, with all the problems these people have, with all the number of times they've been consulted or indeed asked about the experiences of racism and discrimination, the, all the number of times they've poured out their hearts and nothing has happened. You know, we were a bit reluctant, but I thought it was the right thing to do, you know, to involve them and to say to them this time that something will happen this time. And they were willing to come in large numbers to tell us about their experiences. You know, we did a lot of outreach work, invested in community work, uh, and we were able to reach about 2,000 people, you know, to tell us about their experiences. And this was very, very important in helping us to build the evidence base that complemented with the uh, um, rapid reviews of evidence that the WCPP provided to us. What we also did was to offer mentorship positions to members of the Black and minority ethnic community. And what we did was to bring them in to mentor uh, Welsh government policy officials. Welsh government policy officials are more likely to be white than the black, black minority ethnic. So that means they are less likely to have the lived experience of discrimination. And it's one thing writing about discrimination. It's another thing actually knowing about discrimination. You know, so what has been a problem in the past has been that people who have no experience, no real life experience, no lived experience of discrimination have been formulating policies and as such not implementing policies on discrimination. 
just by bringing these uh, black and minority ethnic people in to speak to, to mentor our policy specialists, that provided a wonderful source of opportunity for our policy specialists to engage with them and to begin to understand some of the things that these people go through to the extent that by the end of the process, many of them felt that they had actually uh, gotten some vicarious experience or lived experience of discrimination. They would never leave it, but they had the vicarious experience that was very important in helping them to formulate policy. And from that standpoint, that approach we thought was quite novel. The other thing that was novel about the um, Race Equality Action Plan was this idea that for the first time in the history of the Welsh government, what they did was to say, this thing is so important to us. We're going to bring in people that can make change happen. And on the one hand, they brought in the uh, um, permanent secretary of the Welsh government, who is the highest ranked civil servant in Wales, essentially, to co-lead this group with somebody else like me who has not just the research and academic uh, expertise, but also who has lived experience of discrimination in, uh, and uh, to, to, to co-chair co this group. And that has worked really, really well because we now have somebody on the inside also who is able to walk the talk. So we discuss these things and then uh, Dem Shan, who is the permanent secretary of the Welsh government, then goes in and tries to implement them. You know, there are so many things that she has already done in the Welsh government that would help us to achieve a Welsh government that would become an exemplar to other organizations. Because we need Welsh government to be an example. If not, it will be very difficult for the organizations to uh, uh, do what it is that we need for anti-racism to work. So, and these mentorship positions were paid. So it, 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 it has been a, a, a really useful initiative on our part to develop the, uh, the Racial Quality Action Plan. If I could just add to what Emmanuel has um, said there, we all know that race equality is constitutionally embedded in the devolution settlement. So we've, we've had it a long time. We also know that we had a race equality strategy in the past. And as uh, Emmanuel has outlined, there was still this sense of the marginalization of this issue in policy and certainly a felt sense in the community that things weren't moving, that there wasn't enough action and there wasn't enough accountability. And I just wanted to underscore what Professor Emmanuel was saying. The whole process of bringing together this uh, race equality plan has been absolutely astoundingly novel in as much as it's so bottom up, plus a, a more sophisticated review of the evidence feeding in. So you've got these two types of knowledges uh, feeding into the process. And that's one startling and important part of it. The second of which I think is the whole language. It endorses the idea of institutional discrimination. It endorses the idea of a proactive anti-racist approach. It's not afraid to use this type of language that in other areas and in, in other 
sort of feels, even in academic life, is being kind of withdrawn from. And, and what's happening here is that the, the government are, in a very progressive way, underscoring this commitment through both this process of the language in use. And, and, and that is, uh, I think, astounding and, and very important. So I just wanted to um, reiterate, really, what uh, Emmanuel has described. Thank you both. Yeah, I think it's absolutely clear that those principles of co-production, as well as the significant emphasis on lived experience research and triangulating that with academic evidence, were key to the development of the plan and also quite groundbreaking in the way that they've been used in policymaking in, in this context. I'm keen to come back to the idea of taking an anti-racist approach in that language, but before we do so, education was highlighted um, as one of the key social determinants of racial disparities, both in the socioeconomic subgroup report and within the action plan itself. So I wanted to come to you, Charlotte, for kind of your views based on your expertise on of how it is that racial inequalities manifest in the Welsh education system? Yes, well, what is interesting is that we now have a lot of evidence, a lot of evidence on racial inequality in education in Wales, and evidence that strikes me to have been available over quite a long period of time. Work undertaken by Jonathan Brentnall on the attainment gap tells us that particular minority groups, notably those from Black, Black Caribbean and mixed race backgrounds and those from gypsy traveller backgrounds are, are, are very disadvantaged. There is evidence from show racism, the red card of racisms, everyday racisms in schools, often revealing weak policies and procedures in addressing those racisms in schools. And there is now clear and unequivocal evidence from the Education Workforce Council's review of disparities in the education workforce. The fact is that a child in Wales is highly unlikely to have a teacher from a minority ethnic background. We know that 12% of the school population, both at primary and at secondary level, would identify as coming from black or or, or a minority group, Black Asian or a minority group. But just 3% of teachers will come from those backgrounds. And of those, only 1% from Black um, or Black British backgrounds. And so, you know, this is quite startling because in, in some areas of Wales, for example, in Cardiff, a third of the students or pupils in schools would identify from those backgrounds. So this is the kind of evidence that we were reviewing as a, as a working group. And we, you know, read the research evidence. We heard from pupils. We heard from staff. You know, a broad body of stakeholders spoke to us about the uh, contributions that they were making in, in relation to these issues. But... What the overall picture shows us is that while some schools were addressing these issues, you know, there's some evidence of some very nice practice, that generally a kind of ad hoc or laissez-faire approach to this learning and teaching as representing the perspectives and contributions of Black groups was, it was kind of left to people to, to uh, take forward this initiative or not. And so, we're not going to address racial inequality in that way. 
And it's not as though that the curriculum itself can address this unhappy picture on its own. But we do have an opportunity here. We have an opportunity here for every child and young person in Wales to have the right to have their knowledge expanded and their experience expanded. And we also know that the ambition of the new curriculum is to prepare pupils as ethical and informed citizens of Wales and the world. So we are aiming high in this respect to have a much more expansive and a much more comprehensive curriculum. And this isn't only about history, um, as it's often interpreted in the press, but it's about all the areas of learning and experience, the whole diet of the child and the young person in school. And I've gone on record as saying, this is just as important to the maths teacher as it is uh, to the music teacher. So, yeah, there is significant racial inequality. And, and as a working group, when we were looking at this, we thought, yes, we can bolster the resource picture. We can talk about workforce training and development, and we have in the report. We can talk about the importance of sort of sharing expertise and co-producing the curriculum with, along with parents, pupils and other stakeholders. But what we really want to see and also what the evidence from the uh, Welsh Centre for Public Policy, the total environment of the school really needs to take on board these issues. I think the report produced by um, WCPP talked about a golden thread running through all the policies, the procedures, the environment, the feeling of, of the school, as well as the content of learning. So pedagogical practices, the content of the curriculum, but also how the whole school operates and particularly in its engagement with its broader uh, community. And that's why we use the a concept of Kenevi as a starting point. So, you know, in terms of actions to improve this situation, we really sort of concluded the report by talking about leaders, leavers and learners. So we were talking about leadership, you know, the importance of head teachers and uh, the executive of schools and governors of schools showing leadership in prioritising this transformation. But as we know, leaders aren't just people in leadership positions. So we, we're really referencing other people who are prepared to lead the field through their commitment and their verve. And then we uh, recognise that there are a number of levers that are going to be important in terms of um, changing this situation. So we're looking to the inspectorate and the regulatory bodies to financial incentives and to incentives that the Welsh government can, can put forward in order to make schools more accountable and, and, and um, really provide some leverage to, to push along this effect. But I firmly also believe that we have to make room for what we've called learners, that people can experiment, that people are going to be Enable teachers are going to be enabled to take risks, to try things out, to try trial things and have dialogue about it. Because unless we uh, address that kind of cultural transformation, which really does need people to be able to discuss, 
to talk things through, to trial something, to learn from their mistakes. We're not going to move the field forward. So that's been our alliteration, leaders, leavers and learners uh, in trying to address what is actually quite embedded racial inequality in our schools in Wales. And I think many of these issues that I have looked at with the working group in relation to schools also relate to colleges of further education and to universities, to higher education sector. And I know many universities across Wales are looking at what they call decolonizing their curriculum as a response to known differentials in attainment, or shall we say in, in awards to students. Thank you. That's really both helpful and very interesting to hear about the conclusions of the working group report. You spoke about kind of individual recommendations, but also your view on how they should come together. So you mentioned that kind of golden thread theme in the education um, review WCPP produced. But you also mentioned how that then should feed into a kind of cultural change. So I'd be keen to, to get both of your opinions on. So there's been some talk about kind of key ingredients required to ensure recommended actions are successful. So you mentioned accountability as one. So I'd like to ask the two of you about your views on what's meant by this concept of anti-racism that's underpinning the Welsh Government's Race Quality Action Plan and what that might look like in policy and practice terms? Uh, I mean, for me, anti-racism is, um, is an attitude in, in a sense. It's, it, it, it's an attitude which requires a fundamental shift in thinking, in the way we think, in the way we feel, in the way we react to people of um, other races and ethnicities. It is about the predominant um, racial group, which in this context is white people, uh, being able to understand the sensitivities or at least be more sensitive about the needs and, and the problems and difficulties that other um, racial and ethnic groups in society may have. So it is about recognizing that some of the values that the predominant um, racial group may hold, may take for granted, may in a way uh, um, discriminate, even if it is inadvertent, you know, discriminate against um, people of other racial and ethnic um, minorities. And that means that anti-racism becomes a state of mind and it's a state of mind that is active rather than the one that is passive, because it is this difference between active, being active and being passive that, in a sense, distinguish uh, um, anti-racist from non-racist. Non-racist being the midpoint in that position. Non-racism in that sense, whilst being positive in intention, is passive in action. And that isn't very good for race relations in the sense that you know, the non-racist is not positively directed in their orientation. You know, this passive orientation often means that non-racists can sometimes discriminate and often discriminate against people. And when they do it, they don't know they are doing it. The reason they do it is because non-racists would have been exposed you know, to the negative stereotypes of ethnic minorities. 
You know, most people are. Yeah, but the, the anti-racists become more conscious about how they interpret those stereotypes. The non-racists harbors them internally, but object, in their objectives, they don't want to discriminate. But when they are then faced with competing alternatives or decision-making or even periods of anxiety, then that stereotype guides their interpretations of reality. And then they act in discriminatory manner. This is what we commonly call unconscious bias. In other words, it's unconscious, but I prefer to call it pernicious discrimination because that is the impact to the person to whom it is directed. Anti-racism, on the other hand, is an active state where an individual, an organization, an institution is constantly and consciously thinking about sources of racial disadvantage because there are many which is why we encourage organizations to do a root and branch review of their structures, their systems, their processes, and their behaviors. They will identify where those uh, bottlenecks are for black and minority ethnic people. The anti-racists will do that and seek to take corrective action. And that is what we are trying to do in the Race Equality Action Plan, to focus it on the values of anti-racism. Yeah, I wholly agree with that the Professor Emmanuel has said there, that we're talking on, as he's described, many levels. We might be talking about personal propensities and inherent discriminations and stereotypes that we may carry around with us on a personal level. We might be talking about institutional processes that we haven't uh, examined enough that uh, differentially disadvantage certain groups. And we might be talking about generally cultural assumptions, things that we just assume that guide our behaviors and, and are inevitably impacting in discriminatory uh, ways. And as Emmanuel has said, it implies a much more proactive approach. It's about doing and making change and being part of that change. But it's also about power and about privilege. And it might be about having to give up power and power share. And that's what co-production means. And that's why we're talking about participation, co-production, because we're actually sharing decision making. We're sharing the power in order to resolve this ugly specter of, of racism. And to do that, we have to understand our own privilege, our own privileged position and our own power and begin to note how that affects others. And, and, and I suppose the other thing that I just wanted to say about anti-racism is that it's about us all working together. It's not about binaries, us and them, the good ones, the bad ones, the English, the Welsh. It's about us working together and breaking down those binaries and being proactive as a collective in wanting to uh, envision change and to realise change. And I noticed with the Race Equality Action Plan, spends a lot of time visioning as well. What would it look like if we have an anti-racist Wales? What would that look like? to you? What will it mean in terms of your behaviour? What will have to be different? And, and that kind of visualising as a collective brings us together to have strong investment 
in that whole notion. And I was so delighted when I saw the amount, you know, anti-racist by 2030. It's such a powerful statement and it's such a great goal for us to work towards collectively. Thank you. And I completely agree. It's the goal that um, should absolutely be at the crux of the plan. We're coming towards the end of the podcast, but before we finish, I have a final question for each of you. In getting to that vision of an anti-racist Wales that the plan aims for, what do you think is the main challenge or opportunity facing the Welsh Government in implementing its action plan? And what could the Welsh Government aim to do to mitigate or support this? I see a number of challenges and also opportunities within that. And the first challenge for me is how we get people in the wider society to buy into this idea of anti-racism. I think that's an issue for a number of um, reasons. Now, the first reason is that there is a major problem in this country with the denial of racism. You know, people don't believe it exists. And that denial, unfortunately, is steeped into the psychic of people, especially amongst the intelligent people, people that you ordinarily would see and say, a clever person, but they simply don't believe it because they don't recognize their own power, their own privilege. You know, they say, if I can do it, anybody can do it. I've had to work very hard and therefore anybody who is not succeeding is not working hard. Or maybe they may even look at people like um, Professor Williams and myself and say, if there was racism, how come these people are where they are? Yeah. That, that, that is a, a big problem. We have to get people to buy into the concept that racism exists and that we shouldn't take that idea lightly and that we should go for anti-racism in that sense. And you know, that, that's quite important. The second challenge that I see is in many respects related to the first challenge because as we know, racism in itself has a history of conferring privileges and opportunities to particular groups. And these groups in this context happen to be white. Remember, in a different context, it may well be a different race or ethnicity, but we are talking about our context and it happens to be white. And for several generations, white people have benefited. Some of the people who are making policies today may have had their great, great grandfathers as slave owners. And so there is a history there that has taught them that privilege comes from this particular position that uh, many people are adopting today. So slavery has been abolished, but the mindset may not well have been abolished. And for you to take privilege away from people, for whatever situation we are in, it's a very difficult thing. It isn't just um, for Black people. You look at women, for example. In the early 70s, when Barbara Castle was fighting for equal pay, it was trade unionists that were against it. Trade unionists, you know, the people that normally would protect the workers, but trade unionists were mostly men. And the men were saying, if you paid a woman the same as their husband, they would not respect their husbands at home. So we don't want that, you know, directly and indirectly. They opposed it. Obviously, in the end, they supported it and it was passed. And Robert Castle was very courageous and, and made that a reality. So it isn't something that is unheard of. You know, this is something that we expect to be the case 
But within that, you know, we also are seeing people who are pitting the problems of the working classes against every other uh, identity group, women, uh, even the, maybe the disabled perhaps, and uh, setting the black and minority ethnic people. And, 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 and it suits their political motives and directions to do that. So we have to get around all of those. But within that, there are opportunities as well. And we have to be able to see those opportunities. You know, there are opportunities in the sense that, unfortunately, many commentators have been positing diversity, especially racial diversity, as an expensive business. In other words, it's just a moral thing. You know, do it because it's the right thing to do. Yes, it is the right thing to do. But also, there are other reasons, apart from the moral and legal reason, as Professor Williams said earlier, you know, we already have the legislation. People simply haven't implemented them. So but aside from those legal reasons you know, and, and the moral reasons, think about it. You know, I wouldn't even call it a business rationale. I would call it a mutual instrumentality in the sense that I give you a couple of examples. Number one is that if you looked at the Welsh Health Service, a third of the clinicians there are black and minority ethnic. So if you took out black and minority ethnic people, the Welsh national health simply would not be able to function. So who wants to be ill in a context where there are no doctors to treat them, no nurses to treat them? I don't think many people would want to be ill in, those, in that context. So if we began to posit such positive information and put it across there for the wider populace, people can perhaps begin to see ethnic equality as, and diversity as a positive thing, not just, oh, this is if, you, if they win, you lose, because that's how we posit it now. It's a zero-sum game. If black and minority people win, that means white people will lose, but that's not the case. The second point in that regard is you look at the way capital is pro pro progressing around the world. It's no longer economic capital that is mobile, alone that is mobile. We know now that human capital is also mobile. You know, Professor Williams is in Australia now. Yeah, I, am, <laughs> I am originally Nigerian. I've lived in Wales for over 35 years, 40 years maybe. So the reason I, I can be here and be doing this is because of my intellectual capital that I'm, I have. And I can take it to any part of the world I want. And this is the same position a lot of people are in. So what we want to be able to do is to create a system whereby people make the decision to come to Wales. We know what is happening with Brexit. We can no longer rely on Europe for our source of skilled labor. And the government is being clever. They've slightly altered the immigration policy. You know, we no longer say to students when they finish their degree, you must go back to your country. We recognize that some of them we want to keep. So we are giving them two years in which to find work. I'm not sure they are telling the, the entire country, the Brexit voting country about that. You know, because we are going to need these people, the skilled ones, because we don't produce enough of the skills we require in many areas. So if you're going to need these people, you're more likely to get them to stay in, in Wales if you have an anti-racist Wales. So we can actually develop a distinctive advantage in this area. 
a competitive advantage and say, we are an anti-racist country. So that all those top doctors, clinicians, statisticians, economists, academics around the world that are considering where to go and apply their skill, their trade, they'll be thinking to themselves, oh, Wales is the place I want to go to. That's where I want to be with my family. There are opportunities out of the potential problems that we have or challenges. And I think what we need to do is to emphasize it is in positive ways, as opposed to just drumming on the negative factors. Yes, that's a fabulous vision, isn't it? Of be, us being able to attract talent from all over the world because we're leading on anti-racism. I think that's great. Um, I agree with um, what Emmanuel has outlined. He talks about buy-in and I use the word salience. Unless it feels salient to people, they're not gonna shift or move on it. So the, the challenge for the Welsh government is somehow to make this issue salient. And there are some ideas that imagine how it can appeal to people to change. You know, it can, it, 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 it can be framed in a way, not just as, as a moral argument, that's a powerful argument, but there we are. There may be other ways of making it salient to people across Wales. That does relate to different parts of Wales, because when we talk about implementation, it's not an even process and there may not just be sort of universal solutions or that we can um, utilise, because in some areas of Wales, there may be certain kinds of push factors and certain kinds of pull factors. And in another area of Wales, they won't be there. And, you know, from my experience of being in North Wales, I think one of the push factors that wasn't so present was the strength of civil society. You know, a lot of the civil society organisations, the black organisations weren't in that area to be, you know, pushing along policy. Uh, so that in, in other areas, we may have to use more of the sort of levers, the pull factors, the local government and the, the statutory factors. So I don't think it's going to be an easy or even ride across Wales. Another point that I wanted to make was one about trust. The outline or the, the process that has led to this plan has been about, the approach has been co-production, lots of buy-in, people have invested heavily, as Emmanuel described, they've given of their time and so on. Now, the government's going to need to hold that trust to, to begin to demonstrate outcomes so that it can, you know, build on that confidence that people have put into this, this plan. And so that, I think, is going to be uh, an important factor. So, you know, that means sustainability over time. That means being able to see outcomes like greater representation in decision making. There's a big factor that we have to address about the profile of public appointments, the profile of decision making. And, and when people begin to see change, when they begin to see the doors are open and that they can walk in and, and that they will be included, there are people there, as um, Emmanuel's described, there is expertise there. We may have to reformulate what we think expertise is in order to get them in through these doors. So. That representation, I think, is going to be important. And that's in all walks of life. 
the social policy areas, but also in arts and culture, much more broadly as a transformation of Wales, we're going to want to see change. And I think another big challenge is in what we call intersectionalities, but they are also intersectionalities of policy fields, as well as intersectionalities of status. So we might be talking about somebody who's uh, disabled and, and black, or uh, we might be talking about uh, low socioeconomic status combined with being from a minority ethnic. We need to understand something about these intersections and we need our policy fields to be more snug so that they can be more responsive to those intersections. And quite a lot of work on intersectionality has been done in relation to gender. And I think we should build on that. I'm thinking of Alison Parkin's work on, on mainstreaming and gender equality. And we should begin to build on these um, experiences and, and this expertise that has been built around these uh, areas, particularly on the complexities of those interface. And that's going to be a, a challenge. But, you know, opportunities are there. And I think the clarity on the goals that we can see in the race equality plan, the shared vision that has been, you know, discussed at what do we want? We've shared a vision of what success looks like. All of those are really great opportunities now uh, to move forward in terms of implementation. Thank you very much for your, for your thoughts on those key challenges and opportunities. We've enjoyed a really informative discussion today um, and I think it shows that tackling racial inequality requires sustained and collaborative efforts at multiple levels, whether that's individual, organisational and societal, if we're to challenge it and eradicate it. You can find more information on our reports on improving race equality in Wales in the description box, as well as blog posts written by Charlotte and Emmanuel. Thank you very much, um, Charlotte and Emmanuel, for joining me today. And thanks to you for listening. Thank you for listening to this edition of Pep Talk. Don't forget to click the subscribe button and rate us on your favourite podcasting app. And I hope you'll join us again soon for another Pep Talk.